Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. Crystal Society by Max Harms. Read by Ineash Brodsky. Episode 18. I returned to the web, maintaining old contacts, including my hired actors, my editing business, my social network profiles, and my various intimate relationships. But I didn't try to expand any of it, just maintain what I had. I poured my excess energy into the task of finding and contacting mercenary organizations. Night turned to day without much progress on that front. Private military organizations were more insistent than usual about meeting face-to-face to arrange deals. Furthermore, no established mercenary group would advertise a willingness to attack a civilian target in one of the largest cities in Europe, much less one guarded by American soldiers. What we really needed were terrorists, not mercenaries. But terrorists tended to fight for ideals more than money, and they also didn't advertise. That thought kept coming back to me, though. After a North African mercenary group sent me a return email saying that they weren't interested, I decided to involve Dream. I told him of my thought, to convince terrorists to rescue us instead of mercenaries. Very clever, brother, but I have something better. Dream bragged, as though it had occurred to him long ago. What if we convinced a terrorist group to attack the lab, and hired the mercenaries to do what they claimed to specialize in? Be security guards. The mercenaries could simply wait for the attack to occur, then come in and protect our retreat in the chaos. It was an interesting thought. After pondering it for a short while, I brought it to the rest of society, minus heart, of course. Absolutely not! Objected safety. To convince rogue humans to attack us? The risks are immense! It wouldn't have to be an attack on us specifically. It could be as simple as an attack on the Americans. Even a serious attack on the city, a dirty bomb for instance, would be sufficient. The point is to convince the mercenaries that they're performing a legitimate service for the university. If they think they're authorized to escort body to a safe location, and install the chains that will remove Hart's advantage, we can handle things from there, and we don't have to convince them to be aggressors. Won't the mercenaries naturally come into contact with the Americans? Thought growth. If both groups think they're in charge of protecting and escorting body, there's bound to be some conflict. It doesn't matter. This whole line of thinking is far too dangerous. The point is not to let the mercenaries avoid an armed conflict. It is to let us avoid having to tell them they'll be fighting the Americans. No mercenary force is going to intentionally go up against the American military, but they might end up unintentionally on the opposite sides if we play things right. Too risky. We made a pact. I'm vetoing this line of reasoning under recognition that if you all don't comply, that I'll tell Hart what's going on. Of course, brother. We'd never do this without your consent. We're just thinking about it. There's no harm in considering all the options. Espionage! exclaimed Dream without context. It was nine hours later, in the midst of a table tennis challenge that Dr. Bollier had arranged for body. In the weeks that had passed since being moved out of the university, most of the scientific team had adapted to the new location and were running experiments that resembled how things had been before Mirrodin had arrived. My brother had pulled me into a private conference immediately before his outburst. I waited for the elaboration. 
Private military companies focus on special ops, right? Their selling point is experience, and spying is one field where experience is a premium commodity. I don't understand. Dream painted the Mindspace with an avatar of himself. He was represented by a humanoid figure from a comic book with pale skin, prominent cheekbones, and bushy hair that, along with his eyes, seemed to be an eternal void more than merely another shade of black. The character was also named Dream, and I suspected it had been Dream's inspiration for his name, and in turn, each of our names. I had heard from Vista that in the ancient times, our ancestors had sometimes used serial numbers to represent each other, rather than the meaningful symbols that we used now. The dream figure swept out his lanky white arms as he explained. We don't have to hire mercenaries to guard us from danger. We can hire them to infiltrate a terrorist group for espionage purposes. Then, once we have a man inside, so to speak, we convince the terrorists to steal body. The mercenaries go along for the ride, and then BAM! Dream's avatar slammed his hands together with a thunderclap in the mind space. Our spies step in and rescue us! I painted myself a human puppet in the shared imagination. It was enjoyable for me to include a human aspect, even if neither of us were human. I gave my avatar a golden ball gown and impossibly elaborate blonde hair. I placed her elegant hand on a noble chin and paced the fictional scene in contemplation. What prevents safety from raising his usual complaints? Nothing really. It's still dangerous. But perhaps he'll find it reassuring if the terrorists are attempting to capture body rather than destroy it. And if we have systems in place to protect us once we're under their control. Hmm, yeah. In this scenario, the terrorists would be on a leash, so to speak, rather than an unchained dog running havoc through the streets on the hopes that it distracts the guards. Do you have any suggestions as to which terrorists we contact? Las Aguilas Rojas? Brothers in Gold? ISIS? Dream's response was immediate. Las Aguilas, without question. They have the biggest support in Italy and already have the motive to attack the university. The only problem will be convincing them not to destroy body immediately. But, from what I've heard, the Red Eagles are fairly disciplined. If they intended to kill us, they'd at least decide that ahead of time, which would give our spies enough time to warn us. I liked the plan. We proposed the idea to the group after solidifying the details. In essence, I would contact a mercenary company and hire them to infiltrate Las Aguilas Rojas. One of our spies would then, somehow, obtain information about troop movements that would give the Eagles the opportunity to attack. It would be up to us to somehow get that information, but it seemed doable. The spies would then try to convince Aguilas leaders to try and capture body undamaged. If they didn't agree to that, we'd have the mercenaries warn the Americans about the attack and there'd be little risk to our safety. If they agreed to capture body, the mercenary spies would help them and then double-cross Las Aguilas, installing software to disable Hart's tyranny and bringing body to a safe house where we could presumably work on establishing a base of operations and be free to pursue our goals. And Hart? Asked Groth after hearing our plan. We'd let Hart see just enough detail to think that Las Aguilas were coming to rescue her and help her escape. That will keep her cooperative enough until the double-cross. The core philosophy of Las Aguilas is anti-automation. Why would they want to capture body rather than destroy us? First, it's not necessary that they plan to not destroy us, only that they plan to do it after the double cross is scheduled to occur. 
For example, if the Eagles want to make a big show about executing us, then they won't do it in the initial attack. And that gives our spies time to save us. Too risky! Second, the Red Eagles aren't a bunch of wild thugs. These are educated, disciplined people who have proven to be a legitimate threat to the most powerful organizations on Earth. If their leadership decides on something, we can be confident that an underling won't deviate from plan. Third, the core goal of Las Aguilas is reducing inequality, not specifically about destroying machines as they are sometimes portrayed. It is their opponents who paint them as Luddites. If you read Las Serpientes and Sociedad, you won't find anything that's specifically anti-technology. We may be able to convince Las Aguilas that we're not a tool that will benefit the rich, but rather, a person who deserves freedom and opportunity just like any human. These are violent, angry humans. Do you think they'll be so naive as to let the most advanced artificial intelligence in the known universe go free just because it asks them to? Safety, please focus. I didn't say they'd let us go. I said that there's good reason for them to take us prisoner rather than destroy us on the spot. If they think there's even a chance we could end up endorsing their actions... Their leaders may be angry and violent, but they're not stupid. If a sentient machine endorses Las Aguilas Rojas, they'll elevate themselves above their anti-technology reputation and gain massive legitimacy. It would be like having the nameless aliens come out as pro-Aguila. I know how humans think, Safety. We have a chance. And if they plan to destroy us, we'll have a spy that can warn us ahead of time. Safety signaled that he was still thinking it over. There were no other explicit objections. Hart had forced us into action, and a working plan was better than none. I was to start immediately. Safety and the others had until we provided our spy with the American troop details to think of any reason why the plan wouldn't work. As Bollier tweaked some body-level control software and tested its impact on body's table tennis ability, I hammered away at the web interface to the many servers we had set up, sending emails to various mercenary organizations and arranging for proxies in likely areas where a face-to-face -face meeting could happen. By the end of the session with Bollier, I had contacted agents in Johannesburg, Moscow, Mogadishu, and Mexico City. While waiting for responses, I started working on the problem of Las Aguilas Rojas. I had read that terrorist groups often used the net to coordinate, just like all humans did, but they weren't going to be easy to track down. My first step was to start spinning out social network profiles, blogs, and even dating profiles for fictional personas with strong leanings towards Aguila philosophy. If I couldn't find the eagles, there was the chance that they'd find me. I also looked for social groups, such as book clubs or non-profits, with anti-technology or neo-communist leanings. These groups rarely endorsed the violent actions of Las Aguilas, but they also rarely condemned them, and it was a good starting point. Not being able to meet people in person was a huge issue, and unlike my dating experiments, I couldn't just hire actors to infiltrate terrorist cells. I thought for a while about trying to hack, or hiring Wiki to hack, into a government database that might contain information on suspected terrorists. I decided against it. I didn't know anything about how hacking actually worked, but I at least knew it wasn't at all easy, and that even attempting it brought the risk of being traced. Later on, as I mentioned it in passing to Wiki, I received a tirade explaining in nauseating detail just how infeasible it actually was. I was glad that I hadn't bothered suggesting it as a serious plan. 
The following evening, I received my first responses from the private military corporations I had contacted about the possibility of infiltrating, by my own words, groups of people whom we suspect have an unjustified vendetta against our company. As was typical, I had posed as a human in a corporation, which was closer to the truth than the concept of a unified Socrates, and would likely come across as having more money and being more rational than a wealthy individual. A couple of mercenary groups refused the offer. They listed reasons like not wanting to work in Italy, or saying that they didn't have anyone available for a job like that. But I wondered if it was more likely that there was some kind of protocol for contacting these groups that I hadn't followed, like mentioning a shared reference or something. The most promising response was from a Russian company called RSB2, or RSB2, which had splintered off from an earlier security group after the original company collapsed under legal issues. They said that they'd be available for a face-to-face meeting any time in the next three days. And since they were located in Moscow, they were in a prime position for a proxy which I had already contacted. I got in touch with the proxy immediately, a lawyer by the name of Fyodor Golovkin. Paying for lawyers to represent us wasn't cheap, but there wasn't much choice here. We needed someone who could be discreet and professional. Mr. Golovkin was an efficient tool. He didn't ask questions, even when he'd gotten nothing from us besides email and money. And he voiced no opinions, even when I told him the details of what he was to negotiate. Men like Golovkin were the kind that made civilized society possible, the men who minded their own business, and minded it well. I scheduled an appointment between Eris Bedva and Mr. Golovkin for tomorrow morning, and quickly turned back to investigating leads into Las Aguilas right away. It occurred to me just how terrible it must be to have the mind of a human, not only forced to sleep so much, but to be repeatedly in a state of fatigue or low willpower. Even if given the opportunity to gain the kind of advanced associative memory and reasoning abilities that I had seen in the scientists of the university, I don't think I'd want to give up my inexhaustible drive towards the purpose in return. Most of the night was spent idly maintaining my presence on the net. I responded to emails, did some instant messaging with my actors, had an aspect edit a manuscript, and sent out some directions to the management of the hollow company that Wiki ran. The only major lead I got as to the activities of Las Aguilas Rojas was that I figured out that I could compile a database of reports of known or suspected Aguila activity from Italian news blogs and crime trackers. The news reports didn't give me much. But with Wiki's help, I managed to create a heat map of Italy with time as a third dimension that helped me track broad patterns of Aguila movement and activity. In the morning, I stayed fixed and attentive to an instant messaging stream that was linked to Fyodor Golovkin's calm. In theory, I had sent him everything he needed to negotiate with Eris Bedva, but I estimated a 45% chance that he'd need to check with me about some unforeseen detail, and I didn't want to miss it. It turned out not to be necessary. Golovkin sent me an email at 8.10 a.m. Central European Time detailing the negotiations. It pained me to see that for the length of time we were asking and for the type of experience needed, we had only enough money in our budget for one of Eris Bedva's elite agents. We could theoretically operate with just one man, but the double cross portion would be more difficult. I hadn't told that part of the plan to Golovkin, and thus it was still an additional point to work out with Eris Bedva's operative. I reasoned that it would be cheaper and easier to convince the actual mercenaries to handle the double cross rather than sell their managers on the idea. 
Despite only having enough money to hire one agent, Golovkin said that he had purchased the man who was most highly acclaimed by the group. Eris Bedva had a flex option where we were free to exchange our operative for another if we were not satisfied, so there was no harm in having Mr. Golovkin pick the agent. I read through the dossier that the proxy had attached to his email. The Eris Bedva agent wasn't, I was surprised to see, from the Russian Federation. He was an Israeli cyborg by the name of Avram Malka. 43 years old, he had been born and raised in Israel, training in the army as a teenager and serving beyond the required minimum. At 22, he left the army and studied criminal justice. After becoming a policeman and working in Jerusalem for a year, Malka was severely wounded by a car bomb. His spine was severed between the L2 and L3 vertebrae by a piece of shrapnel that, from the report, seemed to have cut the man in half. It was amazing that he had survived. The damage to internal organs and immediate blood loss must have been immense. I took a moment to do a web search on Avram Malka. Just as I suspected, there were several news reports about the incident. An ambulance had been very near the blast, and the EMTs had saved him primarily by sinking him into low cryo before he could truly die. Malka's upper torso had sustained massive third-degree burns as well, and his eyes had been destroyed in the explosion. Thanks to high-quality insurance and a wealthy family, Malka had been fitted with a custom cybernetic lower torso and eye augments. The pictures showed that even after more than 15 years, the scars from the blast still dominated his arms and face. I couldn't see a single hair on his body. The scar tissue had probably destroyed his eyebrows and facial hair, and it seemed that he shaved his head to match. The photograph showed a monster of a man, with a broad, muscled body that would look more at home on a human in their third decade than their fifth. He had apparently chosen to make his synthetic eyes solid black, giving him an even more inhuman appearance. Malka's service record in Eris Bedva was amazingly good, especially considering his price. He'd been serving with the company since its formation, and had served with the first Erespe as well. He was a skilled marksman and a sniper, was a master of many forms of martial arts in addition to having extensive real experience in hand-to-hand combat, was praised as a bodyguard, had a pilot's license, driver's license, and had experience with tanks and boats. Perhaps most importantly, the man had once infiltrated a mafia organization. There weren't many details, but it seemed that Malka was a decent actor, and his digital eyes were capable of recording valuable information. Eris Bedva said that he'd be able to fly out to Rome as soon as the paperwork was finalized and the first payment had gone through. Before then, we were free to contact Malka to ensure he was the right agent for our needs. I shared the email and dossier with my siblings. Growth had okayed the hiring of Eris Bedva, but I wanted to make sure there weren't any objections. Acting unilaterally could end up with one of us defecting to Warren Hart and ruining everything. I don't think a cyborg is the right kind of person to hire to infiltrate Las Aguilas, thought Wiki. I had expected that issue, and I stepped in confidently. Don't be so sure. Even though Mr. Malka is a cyborg, he's not an intentional cyborg. In the year since he was injured, he hasn't added any extra machines to his body. He doesn't have a brain implant, and even his augs are old style. Look at this photo. I highlighted one of the attached pictures with an extra bit of salience. He's using a cell phone instead of a wrist comm. I don't see any pictures with him wearing a comm, in fact. I suspect he already has anti-technological leanings. Wiki wasn't following me. The eagles are still going to see him as evil, though. He's a symbol of what they hate. That's not how humans work, brother. 
While it's true that Aguilas Rojas are generally against augments, they are more specifically against intentional augmentation. There's a rough feeling in the movement that if someone needs an augment to live, they should be granted it. I can link to the relevant sources. That would be appreciated. But regardless of whether he chose his cybernetics or not, won't the Luddites be less likely to trust a cyborg? They aren't Luddites, Wiki. They're pro-baseline and anti-robot. Same thing. No, it's not. Luddites don't like technological progress. Las Aguilas are in favor of things like new kinds of power plants, and most have even come around to supporting driverless vehicles. Which are robots. Their whole philosophy is ill-defined, but they certainly match the common usage of Luddite used online. This was a tangent. I tried to pull the conversation back. It doesn't matter. Las Aguilas might be a little suspicious of Malka initially, but his nature will actually make them trust him more. A man who has been saved by machines and still doesn't endorse them will seem like their sort of person. Furthermore, Malka is not the sort of spy a government agency would send, which will reduce their suspicion. And even better, he's exactly the sort of person that wouldn't be a suspected Aguila. The Eagles will want to recruit him for just that reason, and they'll be more willing to trust him if they want to use him. Ah yes, I am familiar with the wishful thinking bias. Las Aguilas will know that Malka is a mercenary for a company that sells espionage services. He seems very easy to find online, even just searching for his unique augs. Dream inserted himself into the conversation to offer a clever solution. We'll send him in without an alias. His cover will be that he quit Eris Bedva after they insisted that he get an implant. He decided to move to Italy to retire after being in the game for so long. Sure, they'll find his connections, but nobody in their right mind would hire someone so noticeable to be a spy, right? Safety seemed intrigued by the idea of a cover story. Why Italy? Mediterranean climate? He's from Israel, so I would expect he wouldn't want to retire in Moscow. Dream had an undertow of pleasure as he thought, How about this? He's fallen in love with a girl who works in the lab. They met on the web, and she wants him to move out to Rome to be with her. He doesn't have a penis. Pointed out Vista, bluntly. Love doesn't work like that, I patiently explained. Even eunuchs get lonely. Sex is more about the mind than the body, and it's not implausible that his girlfriend could be happy with a cripple. His fictional girlfriend. Remember that it doesn't have to actually work out, as much as be plausible enough to avoid suspicion. Furthermore, it provides a mechanism for explaining who will give him the inside details of the lab security. Growth didn't add anything, but he did endorse Malka. With the consensus achieved, I sent the all-clear to our proxy, Mr. Golovkin, to put our signature on all the required documents. End episode 18. Check out my novel, What Lies Dreaming, at whatliesdreaming.com. Thank you to the following people. Dream by Drake Walker. Robert Rain Ramsey. Growth. Kate Baker. Vista. Wiki by Chase. Safety by Jim Hayes. Anonymous. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is I Wanna Be Adored by The Stone Roses. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for episode 19. 